I'm Vicki Mochama, and this is No Little Plans, a podcast about the UN Sustainable Development Goals in Canada. For this episode, we'll look into one issue at the heart of SDG goal number three, which is all about ensuring healthy lives and promoting well-being for all at all ages. Today, we're talking about pharmaceutical access in Canada. The Canadian healthcare system gets talked about a lot, especially in comparison to our neighbours down south. We will have long waits for care, just like they do in Canada. Uh, what is the greatest Canadian contribution to medicine? I think probably uh, universal health care. Senator Bernie Sanders is heading to Canada this Sunday. He will take a bus tour with diabetes patients across the border to buy less expensive insulin. We hear a lot about Canada as having a free universal health system. But many parts of health care coverage are not included in that system, like mental health care, dentistry, and pharmaceuticals. Even before the COVID-19 pandemic, Canadians were having trouble paying for their medicine. A report by the Canadian Nurses Union found that one in every 10 Canadians doesn't take their medicines as prescribed because of -of out-of-pocket costs. Some patients skip doses, cut their pills in half, avoid getting prescriptions, while others just don't get them filled at all. Depending on where you live in Canada and your status, you may have access to a provincial health care plan. But with that comes different prices for drugs and different rules around coverage. Back in 2007, the Commonwealth Fund found that 6% of Canadians paid over $1,000 for out-of-pocket prescription drug costs. This was higher than every other country in the survey except the United States. That was over 10 years ago, and since then, the number of people with chronic illness has only increased. And so, too, has the cost of drugs. For example, the cost of biologics, which is a new class of drugs that can be life-changing for people with chronic illnesses like arthritis, psoriasis, Crohn's, and colitis, the costs of those can add up to $20,000 to $50,000 a year in Canada. For a country that prides itself on universal health care, these statistics are pretty shocking. But for those working inside the system, They've been aware of these disparities for a really long time. So my name is Daniel or Dan uh, Reza, and I'm a family doctor in Toronto, assistant uh, professor at U of T, and I'm the board chair of Canadian Doctors for Medicare. Dr. Daniel Reza is a family doctor with the Department of Family and Community Medicine at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. That means he works in primary care. I think many people uh, in Canada, and I think a lot of folks outside of Canada too, are surprised to hear that we're the only high-income country with a universal healthcare system that does not include a universal drug plan. You know, there are where I work in Ontario, there is a public plan, but you only qualify for it if you're young enough or old enough or poor enough. And then if you don't qualify for a public plan, you better have a job, but it's got to be a job with benefits. So not a part-time job, probably not a job at a not-for-profit or a small business. Uh, But there aren't a huge number of folks in that category either. So there's this huge gap right in the middle of folks who are working part-time precarious work, uh, freelancers, people who are, you know, in the working poor who are having to make some, you know, very significant decisions about what to pay for. There was a study not long ago in the Canadian Medical Association Journal, and it found that there were almost a million people in Canada 
who are doing things like turning down the thermostat uh, at home, skipping, you know, food purchases, and some, you know, other really important expenses in order to pay for the prescription medications they needed. The report that Danielle mentions also found that drugs for mental health conditions were the most commonly reported drug class for cost-related non-adherence. That's a complicated way of saying that it's mental health drugs that people couldn't afford the most. Overall, the study found that these negative outcomes were more common among females, younger adults, Aboriginal peoples, those with poorer health status, those lacking drug insurance, and those with lower income. And although the First Nations and Inuit Health Branch of Health Canada provides universal drug coverage to eligible patients, more than half do not qualify for this coverage. So if we just zoom out for a sec, Canada, we pay on a per capita basis the third highest amount of money in the world on prescription drugs behind only, you know, the U.S. and Switzerland. You know, we get a bronze medal here, but this is not a podium that we should be, you know, proud to be on, right? We, this is not a medal we want to win. Can you tell me what happens when someone can't pay for their medicine? That is a scenario that happens more often than I care to admit, and it's a very uh, difficult one to deal with. I'm lucky that I work with a pharmacist as part of my family health team, and um, he really helps me troubleshoot this. You know, sometimes it's applying on a compassionate basis to a drug manufacturer to see if we can get their medication. And sometimes it's actually just our team paying for the medication itself. We actually, our family health team fundraises around the holidays in December every year, and we have something called a comfort fund that we actually use to, to pay for patients who are in circumstances like this. It's happened so frequently that we're kind of, we actually fundraise amongst our team to help fill this gap. Uh, it's incredibly frustrating. And not every family doctor's office is fundraising to help pay for the medications that their patients need. And there are a ton of patients who are left in this position where they can't afford their drugs. And the other thing that I think is important to say is a lot of people have a lot of shame about this, right? Like when they go to the, see their doctor... They want to be able to say that they're following their doctor's advice, that they're taking their medications. And a lot of people are too scared to admit that they can't afford their prescription drugs. So, in fact, you know, I expect there's a lot of underreporting of this issue in, uh, in doctor's offices. And I can only imagine how patients are feeling in these situations. It's immensely frustrating. And it's a situation that, you know, is only going to get worse in the middle of this pandemic and a situation that is overdue to change. The COVID-19 pandemic is putting an immense pressure on Canadians. And it is bringing to light many of the holes in our social safety net. We're seeing waves of unemployment. We don't even know how many people will end up in the unemployment line, but there are people who are losing their jobs. And for a lot of those folks, those jobs came with drug plans, and they're losing those uh, too. And now they're going to be joining the the ranks of people who were struggling to pay for medications even before these waves of unemployment. So this problem becomes even more urgent. Even if you are lucky enough to maintain employment during the pandemic, it's important to keep in mind that before it all started, fewer and fewer people were being offered long-term contracts. According to StatsCan, 2.1 million people were working temporary jobs in 2018. And if you are lucky enough to have a private insurance plan, as Danielle explains it, they aren't all created equal. Even if you have an insurance plan, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a good one. And it means that there are people who are 
rationing their medication, uh, you know, instead of taking it twice a day, once a day, or every other day, and who are making tough choices about what not to pay for in order to pay for their prescription medications. When the cost of drugs means people have to cut down on basic necessities such as food, clothing, or children's education, the World Health Organization considers these costs to be catastrophic. Politically, there has been movement on this issue. Just last February, the NDP tabled a bill on universal pharmacare. And there is hope that the pandemic may increase attention and investment into public health care systems. In the middle of a pandemic, we have to deal with the acute issues, and then we have to keep an eye on dealing with some of the chronic ones that are going to follow. My name is Rowan Burge, and I have type 1 diabetes, and I live in Canada on the West Coast, and I do quite a bit of healthcare advocacy work. I spoke with patient advocate Rowan Burge to learn how the cost of medication adds to the burden of getting sick in Canada. One in three Canadians lives with chronic disease, and Rowan is one of them. Type 1 diabetes is a really uh, management-intensive chronic disease, so it involves multiple daily injections for most people. Um, type 1 diabetics are insulin-dependent. Um, essentially, your pancreas doesn't make insulin anymore, and so you have to inject it to... Um, basically process the food that you're eating and breaking it down into glucose. So it's quite labor intensive in terms of constantly checking your sugars, um, adjusting as needed. Every time you eat, you have to compensate for that food with insulin. It's a pretty full-time job. It is estimated that 57% of Canadians with diabetes reported failing to adhere to their prescribed therapies due to affordability issues related to medications, devices, and supplies. It is projected that by 2020, approximately 4.2 million Canadians will have diabetes. And so depending on where you live, you might have completely different access to the medications that you're using and different price points, um, which is, uh, yeah, a bit shocking. I found that out by moving to Saskatchewan for a year and a half and suddenly what usually cost me $300 was $700. And so depending on your province or territory, um, you might have a completely different price point for the medications, even though they're exactly the same prescriptions. I've said before that I've spent upwards of $100,000 of my personal money on medication, on fair pharmacare co-pays, on prescription co-pays, on, you know, deductibles and limits and things like that. So it's been a very expensive ride. And I think to, to be able to not have to worry about that financial burden would be amazing for me. I'd be able to save money. I'd be able to do things that a lot of people of my peer group are able to do at this point, knowing I don't have to worry about where my meds are going to come from would be a huge relief um, in a way that I don't even know if I could describe right now. For people with chronic illness, the high cost of medicine is a bitter pill to swallow. And for diabetes patients, it must be horribly ironic because synthetically produced insulin was discovered in Canada. In fact, the inventor, Dr. Frederick Banting, sold his rights to the University of Toronto for a dollar. He's known to have said, insulin does not belong to me, it belongs to the world. Originally, Dr. Banting made it clear that he wanted this to be available for people worldwide to prevent diabetes. And so I think it's really ironic that now, you know, there's three, I think internationally, there's three manufacturers globally of insulin, and they're just able to hike those prices up. Um, and make a ton of money off something that was originally supposed to be, you know, for the people, by the people. So it's, it is ironic that it has come to this, um, given the original t intentions of, of the discovery. 
Rowan explained a peculiarity that may seem unusual to people who aren't sick, but familiar to anyone who deals with their health issues in Canada. Even with access to the insurance her job provides, her own pre-existing private health insurance, and the British Columbia Health Plan, Rowan is still not fully covered. So for myself, I'm actually not covered in the ways that I need by my work plan. I have a private plan that I pay for, which I actually had before I was diagnosed. Um, and if, if I hadn't had that, I actually would have a really difficult time accessing insurance because of now my pre-existing medical condition. Um, and so for myself, you know, if I ever get a job that has coverage for diabetic supplies, I will be thrilled. But I do warn that some insurance companies have these maximum limits wherein they decide they kind of cap you per year. And so I have a category in my private insurance plan that is called diabetic supplies. And once I reach $5,000 per year, they just stop paying, which is what happened to me last year. Last year, Rowan had to crowdfund her medical bills on GoFundMe, which has become the go-to website for filling the gaps in America's healthcare system. A full third of the site's donations are to cover medical bills. That means many people like Rowan turn to their own networks to help cover their essential health care. Yeah, it's a huge stressor, you know, and stress actually, ironically, impacts a lot of people's um, ability to manage their chronic illnesses. So when I'm really stressed out about my healthcare bills, it actually makes my medic- like my physical condition worse. Even going to the pharmacy and explaining this to a new pharmacy can be a mess because I'm like, okay, you need to put in this insurance card and this one and this one, and then the rest of them will submit receipts, essentially. But it, it is a mess, and it's really difficult to sort out. Um, and then figuring out, you know, premiums for which insurance plan, which insurance plan covers what, when one maxes out? Should I be able to use the other one? Yeah, all sorts of things that um, become quite complicated. How is the coronavirus pandemic affecting how you get access to your diabetes medication? At the start of the corona panic, there were shortages at my pharmacy that got quite stressful. There was, a yeah, over a week there where they just, the stock wasn't there. Um, so that was quite scary. We've been assured now that insulin will be available in Canada. Hopefully we won't see that come again. But it, it was quite frightening to think, gosh, if I don't have this you know, little hormone, I, uh, I would die quite quickly. And that's, yeah, that's scary. I think when we think about disaster planning and disaster management, that's another kind of factor to have in mind is that people who need their meds often need them ongoingly. And, you know, insulin lasts in a fridge for up to a month or two months, I think. So it's, it's pretty important to get it um, consistently. My name is Jacqueline Duffin. I'm a historian and a hematologist, and I am retired from Queen's University, where I'm Professor Emerita in the Faculty of Medicine. A hematologist is a specialist in diseases of the blood. Since retiring from her hematologist practice, Dr. Jacqueline Duffin became an advocate, speaking out against the ongoing drug shortages problem in Canada. I first got interested in the problem of access to drugs in my clinical work when a patient of mine, uh, this is more than 10 years ago, could not obtain an ordinary old drug to control her nausea. She was young, she had metastatic breast cancer, and because of that, she wanted to quit all her chemotherapy, which would have been very dangerous for her. I couldn't understand why she couldn't obtain that drug, and I got angry. That's how I got started. Jacqueline created a website about drug shortages, which provides patient stories and other info about the drug shortage issue in Canada. She worked with John Pipitone, a medical student at Queen's University, to analyze the data. 
She explains how, even before the COVID-19 crisis, Canada was dealing with a drug shortages issue. We have experienced drug shortages steadily for the last decade or more. And at any given time in Canada, there's over 1,500 drugs in short supply. The WHO recommends that countries keep a list of essential medicines. Dr. Duffin and other health advocates recommend instating such an essential medicine list in Canada, which would require the government to recognize and preserve a supply of certain drugs. Dr. Naf Persaud at St. Mike's Hospital has presented a prototype of this list in his clean med study. He found that distributing essential medicines for free resulted in a 44% increase in adherence and some improved health outcomes. What we have done with his list is assess what proportion of those drugs have been affected by shortages, and we find that it is a vast percentage of those drugs have been affected by shortages, uh, at least in the last two years. What's the hardest part about working on the drug shortages issue? I would say that a lot of Canadians don't know that there is until they're affected by it. Either a family member or themselves can't get a drug they've relied upon for years. And then they don't understand why and they demand to know why and they need the drug and and they'll make a fuss. And sometimes they succeed in getting journalists to pay attention. But when it gets fixed, those people who are affected stop worrying about it because it's fixed. And that would go also for the physicians who look after them and want to have those drugs. What they don't realize is that probably underneath all of these drug shortages are similar common factors to do with pricing, to do with sourcing and manufacturing, to do with distribution. And what we need to do is maintain a concerted effort to get to the bottom of the drug shortages and find out the cause. I don't see why Canada can't be the first to stand up and invite other countries to participate in a big discussion on this to get to the bottom of it, to understand what the causes are. They could do that through the World Health Organization or through the OECD or through the World Trade Organization because this is a business problem as well. A crisis can be a wake-up call about the cracks in a social safety net. But a crisis should do more than provoke thought and start conversations. By zeroing in on an issue like pharmacare, we can see how, despite the promise of universal health care in Canada, many people are still being left behind. Today, we heard from Dr. Jacqueline Duffin about the ongoing drug shortages problem, and from patient advocate Rowan Burge about the choices she has to make to afford her medical costs and from Dr. Daniel Raza about how this impacts a doctor's ability to give gold standard treatment after a patient leaves the door. They offered suggestions and solutions to help alleviate these issues, from an essential medicines list to a single-payer pharmacare system that could work hand-in-hand with other health services. Pharmaceutical access is only one of the many blind spots in a system that systematically excludes and ignores marginalized and vulnerable people. For example, Canada still doesn't disaggregate health data by race, which means in some ways, the full story of how healthcare works and doesn't work and who it leaves behind is yet to be told. But that deserves its own episode. Moving forward post-pandemic, we need to dream big or maybe just deliver on that original promise of universal free medical care. I'm Vicky Mochama, and this has been No Little Plans, a podcast from Community Foundations of Canada. Our producer is Ellen Payne-Smith. Our executive producer is Katie Jensen. Our music is by Elle Kahn. 
The show is a project of Strategic Content Labs, Canada's content marketing consultancy. If you want to learn more about the SDGs, go to alliance2030.ca. It's a website created by Community Foundations of Canada to track SDG efforts by communities across Canada. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share as it helps other people find the show. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at No Little Podcast. Subscribe wherever you get podcasts and join us as we look at the big plan to reshape the world.